Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about their fave genre film, maybe one that influenced their own work. And today, I'm so ecstatic to have one of my favorite people here, living legend Barbara Crampton on the show. Oh, so happy you invited me on. Thank you. Um, For those of you who are not familiar with Barbara's work, I mean, I don't know who you are or why you're listening to this (laughs) podcast, but let me give you some background. Barbara began her career as a stage actress in New York before landing a role on the soap opera Days of Our Lives in 1983. She then appeared in Brian De Palma's Body Double before achieving an instant cult status by playing Megan Halsey in Stuart Gordon's Reanimator. It's a retelling of H.P. Lovecraft's story about reanimation after death. The horror fans loved Barbara. We still do. And she subsequently starred in From Beyond, Chopping Mall, Puppet Master, and Castle Freak. Barbara retired for a while, but just when she thought she was done, she got pulled back into the game with Adam Wingard's You're Next. She then appeared in We Are Still Here, Beyond the Gates, Sunchoke, Little Sister, a personal favorite, and Applecart, originally named Applecart, probably changing the name to Dead Knight. Uh, she stepped into a producer role with Beyond the Gates and Road Games and has emerged as a vibrant culture critic, engaging her legion of fans in critical dialogue on genre films. Last year, she penned a personal favorite essay of mine on the term Scream Queens for Birth Movies Death. Uh, you guys can go and read that today. Soon she'll be starring in the newest iteration of Puppet Master called Puppet Master the Littlest Reich written by Craig Zoller who Switchblade fans will remember from uh, Emily Gordon's Bone Tomahawk episode. Barbara chose one of my personal favorite films to talk about today and it's a newer one. Uh, It's called Raw and if you've ever heard me talk for longer than 10 minutes you've probably heard me bring that up. Um, Barbara, could you tell me why this is one of your fave genre films and why you chose it? Well, it's interesting, you know, I have a lot of favorite movies like we all do. And I reached out on Facebook and I said, guys, I'm, I'm going to be talking to April about, you know, a movie that might be undersung or something that uh, doesn't get a lot of love or something that is a little seen. What do you guys think? What What's a good movie? So I, I got about 250 suggestions. Mm-hmm. And out of that, I just was sort of collating in my mind, what are the things that are important to me that I would like to talk about? And of course, um, you know, the fact that women filmmakers don't get enough love um, is something that is very current in our culture right now. And we're all talking about it and it doesn't really need an an introduction. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought, you know, this is a French movie. It's a, a brand new filmmaker. I have no idea what she's doing now. I'm I'm sure she's being offered a lot of things um, and working on some stuff. But I thought it was one of the most beautiful and thoughtful and just – she had such technical ability. Yes. For a first film, you know, mm-hmm. even just visually, visually watching it. Some of the shots were amazing and the storytelling and the metaphors. It was a movie that blew me away. And the funny thing is, when I first saw it, I was actually working on Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich Mm -hmm. in Dallas, Texas. And I had a day off and I took myself to the movie theater. And I was the only person in the theater and I watched the movie by myself. And I was like, where is everybody? This movie is freaking great. And that stayed with me. And I had heard 
that people liked. I think it uh, premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, and I had heard a lot of things about it and read some reviews. But I really think that um, it is something that uh, needs a little bit more attention and a little more love. Yeah, I absolutely Mm. agree. Um, And continuing to give her love so that her career can flourish because Mm -hmm. this is clearly a formidable talent. Yeah. I mean, I I, again, I don't know what she's doing. Maybe you've done a little research on on her and and know, you know, what she's doing next. But the themes that she explored in this movie of just, you know, coming of age and the sins of the parents and um, authority and sexuality. Uh, it, there's just so much in this movie. And of course, the two leads are sisters and they're women. And I just just applaud her for, you know, her effort and her storytelling capability. Um, and let's back up a little bit, yeah. because let's tell people about this movie, because some mm-hmm. may not have seen right. it. So I mean, we'll mm-hmm. give you guys an introduction. For those of you who haven't seen Raw, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you want to pause and peep Raw first, go ahead now. And I'm sure you're back now. So let's give a full introduction to Raw. Written and directed by Julia Ducarnot, uh, Raw stars Garance Marillier and Ella Rumpf as sisters Justine and Alexia. Uh, Justine is around 16 and a devout vegetarian like the rest of her family. She's heading off to veterinary school where her sister is already studying and where her parents met years before. When she gets there, she realizes that Alexia is a queen bee and won't save Justine from the brutal hazing the school is famous for. In fact, Alexia makes the straight-laced smarty pants Justine's life even worse by forcing her to eat a rabbit kidney. Her first bite of meat ever. After that, something awakens in Justine, a hunger. She craves meat every minute of the day and develops strange rashes on her body. Justine, who was sexually repressed before, becomes a young woman on the prowl, lusting for men, for flesh, and sisterly love. After an unfortunate incident involving Alexia's severed finger, the sisters bond with one another, realizing that both are going through the same carnivorous changes. But then there is a murder. There is a moral conundrum. In the end, Justine realizes it wasn't her versus her sister. It was the two of them versus the world. That's a nice way of saying that these two women are literally man-eaters. They're they're cannibals. (laughs) So that's, that's it, yeah. In a nutshell. That's it in a nutshell. And, you know, I think it was Shakespeare that said there's only eight stories in the human condition. And, you know, so we keep retelling a lot of the same stories, but how can you tell it in a new way? And to use the, you know, uh, metaphor of being a man eater, but, you know, trying to find a place for yourself at the same time Mm -hmm. is is very kind of telling about – where our society is and what we're looking at today. And I really love the first scene of the movie. Um, It's a quiet scene and it's a wide shot of somebody on the side of the road. Well, actually, you don't see the person first, but you just see a car coming. Yeah. And then um, uh, this girl runs out into the middle of the road and creates an accident. And then you're like, what? What is that? And then yes. it cuts to the um, the drop-off by the parents at the at the veterinary school. And um, it and and you have to, you know, there's callbacks in the movie and you you realize what that is because that scene shows up again and 
you know, the the older sister, Ella's trying to, Ellen Rumpf is trying to teach her sister how to actually find food, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's animal. It's, it's an animal thing. And the other thing that struck me about the movie that I thought was really cool was that we've all grown up. I Fortunately, I'm one of five children and I'm the youngest, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I saw all the mistakes that my family made and I tried not to make the same mistakes. So they also gave me some really great things in my life. But I don't remember anybody ever saying to me, this is the dynamic of our family. These are the issues we have. These are the problems we have. This is what happens in life. This is what you have to look out for. Mm-hmm. I don't know. When I grew up, I didn't I didn't get much of that. And I sort of had to figure it out on my own. And it's the same thing with this movie. And it explores that, that the parents have a secret. And it's not revealed to the end of the movie. And you don't, you don't realize that the, the parents are part of the problem as yes. well. And I didn't really – I read some reviews of the movie and I didn't really see that explored as much as I as it meant to me you know um, because I think as as a family when you're growing up you should say look you know I messed up in these areas or those areas and I may have influenced you more than I thought that I might have mm-hmm. and so watch out for these issues and maybe because I work in film and I explore all these kinds of things I talk to my kids in that way you know, about. oh, I love the idea that you're you're using film as like <laughs> the parenting thing of like a tool. what not to do exactly, yeah. <laughs> especially in horror films because horror films is like yes, the parents will fuck you up, right? Exactly. So, yes, yeah, it's always the parents' fault, right? <laughs> but yeah, you know. as it usually is in real life, the the teaching of the younger sister uh, uh, falls on a sibling, you know, like that. Right. So the older sibling has to do the experience and and um, make mistakes and and go through a very tumultuous life to um, help the younger kind of mm-hmm. survive. Um, when I did a Q&A with Julia, she actually said that um, the two characters weren't originally sisters oh, and that they were just friends. But uh, hmm. the thing is that she couldn't figure out a way to make Justine's character stick around when Alex was so terrible to her because she is right terrible. Um, and Julia said, I was just like, do you have sisters? And she's, of course. Yeah. You know, the, she, that, that relationship is so realistic. Um, but she was saying that it's the one relationship she could find where um, you will subject yourself to another person's torture. And um, even if someone's trying to destroy your sense of being mm-hmm. like the worst things and you would still defend them to the death against anyone else. And so that was kind of a, ne- a necessary yeah. storytelling tool that she had. And yeah, it's about the bond. Yes, right? How yeah. much of a bond do we have with our siblings? And and with a friend, I could see that that might not you know match up as well. To me, it seems like uh, sisters are kind of an unmined territory when it comes to film and these mm. kinds of relationships that <clears throat> that women have that are uh, have unbreakable bonds mm-hmm. that uh, that are really strange and sometimes tenuous. And uh, right. you know, I think it's it's. It's indicative of relationships we have with everybody. It's just that we're forced with our sisters to um, stay put. You know, it's like marriage. It's like anything else. It's like any kind of bond that you have with somebody. And how how can you stick it out with somebody who's not your sister or not your husband? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we let go of friends because 
um, there's been a slight that's happened or, you know, you get mad at somebody and you can't quite get over that. And I don't know, when you're younger, as a younger person, I see more friendships sort of break apart and fall away. And as I've gotten older, my friends make dumb mistakes. I make dumb mistakes and we all just go, whatever, you know. And the longer I'm married, then the more dumb things my husband does or I do. (laughs) Thank God he says Whatever. So, um, yeah, I think I think there's something to say about being forced into a bond. And how do you say so what when somebody fucks up, you know, and and move on and take that with you and make that a part of you and make that also okay? Because we're always making mistakes all the time, you know. Um, and I think it's easier probably to tell that in story if you have a married couple or sisters. Um, like Julie was saying with Raw, mm-hmm. I, and I understand that point of view. But also, how do you, you know, what keeps you there with your friendships? What keeps you there with your husband? What keeps you there with your family that you know you 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 can't leave them? Mm-hmm. And um, I think the more evolved we get as a society, we, except for Trump, <laughs> we say you know <laughs> he's the only one we can't say so what to. Um, <clears throat> But um, this isn't a political show, so everything I do is political, Barbara. <laughs> I can't stop it. I know we're all obsessed, but sure, I don't see a lot of uh, you know sister movies. I mean, I you know, of course, the first thing I think of is Brian De Palma's Sisters, but uh, it's a great film. It's a great film, which I just watched again uh, a couple of months ago. Yeah, um, just the beauty of how he shoots a movie is. Pretty incredible, and I, and in going back to Raw, I think her shots were really incredible. I I kind of focused on that a little bit too when I was um, rewatching the movie. You know, I feel more adept at talking about character and relationships and things like that. But watching one of the first scenes where all the um, the people are uh, during the hazing and during that rush week, they're they're forced into the hallway and they were almost yeah. like cattle, right? Yes. Which is another metaphor for, you know, what we're talking about in the movie and just herded along and not individualized. And um, and you have to just go with what everybody else is doing. And then there was a, a shot of a stairway where they were, the kids were coming down the stairs and it was gorgeously shot. I don't know what their budget was or how much time they had, but most... Well, they had 37 days. Oh, that's and, a lot. <clears throat> that's actually a lot. And they were working on uh, five-day weeks. Oh, okay. Um, and so... Well, so they had two days off. That's nice. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I just I just finished a movie up uh, two days ago, and I think the original shooting was supposed to be 15 days. And uh, we went to 18, and we just kind of made it. Um, so you don't get a lot of takes, and... You know, you've got to be ready right away. And yeah. everybody's – you're basically rushing through your day. Um, but to get that kind of time was great. I shot a movie recently, the Apple Cart movie, which might be called Dead Night now. Um, they're they're toying with that. Um, I think our original um, schedule for that was something like 20 or 21 days. And uh, the director kept reshooting and adding scenes. And mm-hmm. we did that for a period of – I don't know, like a year or so. And um, the director of that movie was also the uh, producer of John Dies at the End, Don Coscarelli's movie. And he 
they they did this on that movie and they did it on our movie where they just kept coming back and adding days. So we actually wound up shooting probably for 40 days. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is a lot, you know, but on weekends and when we had time. And then you have time to actually look at the material yeah. and put it together and say, oh, what are we missing? What, what story element uh, do we feel like we want to heighten or we don't have right now? And Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's interesting. A lot of people might not know that um, reshort, uh, reshoots are actually pretty normal yeah. for films um, to go back out. You look at the, the, you know, the rough cut and you say, oh, maybe we need this to really fill in that story. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, some people think, oh, we have to reshoot because there was a problem. But sometimes it's not that there's a problem. It's that you see something that and a light bulb goes off and you go, oh, my God, we have this. But this is going to also add to the story if we put this element in. I remember when we were doing Beyond the Gates, um, we we looked at the rough cut and we went, oh, it's not bad. Most rough cuts really suck and you think you don't have a movie and it's a frightening experience to look at a rough cut. But um, <laughs> we saw this one and we went, oh, we want to heighten Graham Skipper's um, character to have a lot more sympathy from the audience and how could we do that and what what can we write for him that will uh, sort of imbue him with that feeling of oh man I really feel sorry for this guy and I want to you know go on this journey with him and mm-hmm. and Jackson Stewart wrote some beautiful scenes for him and then you know took off and then it really added to the movie we're going to take a quick break but when we get back I want to talk about um, some of these group scenes in Raw right? because um, they're they're really fantastic and there's some really fun ways that Julia got these scenes um, so we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back I'm Allegra Ringo. And I'm Renee Colbert. And we host a podcast called Can I Pet Your Dog? Renee, can I tell you about a dog I met this week? Uh, I wish that you would. In turn, though, can I tell you about a dog hero? May I tell you about a dog breed in a segment I like to call Mutt Minute? (laughs) I would love that. Could we maybe talk about some dog tech? Could we have some cool guests on, like Lin-Manuel Miranda, Nicole Byer, and Ann Wheaton? I mean... Yeah, absolutely. I'm in. You're on board. What do you say we uh, we do all of this and put it into a podcast? Yeah, okay. You think? All right. Uh, should we call it like I don't know? Can I pet your dog? Sure. All right. Uh, what do you What do you say we put it on every Tuesday on Maximum Fun or on iTunes? Sounds the- good to me. Meeting's over. And welcome back. You're listening to Switchblade Sisters. I'm here today with Barbara Crampton. Woohoo! I'm here with April Wool. <laughs> and we are talking raw. So I wanted to talk a little bit about these extras scenes. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things that we actually rarely talk about when it comes to raw, but it makes it so, mm. so good. And something you brought up when we, we do like the, the hazing rituals. Right. Um, do Cornell, uh personally cast all 300 of them? No way. And yes, exactly. So you hear Barbara's shock at that. That doesn't happen. There's a there's usually a casting person who who does the extras casting. Yeah, and it's whoever is available. Yes, because you don't get paid a lot. No. So she personally cast all 300 of these extras like she was single-handedly constructing this veterinary school. Um, She said that she tried to keep their characters in mind and use them in scenes in a way that would fit with how they had appeared in in other scenes, Mm. um, really building their characters. And, you know, made for a better, fuller film that felt realistic, um, but also 
was a way to get the extras invested in the film mm-hmm. um, because they'd have to be there for the full 37 days of shooting, which is a huge undertaking if you're an extra. Oh, my God. Yeah, you want to feel like you're a part of the project. That's so smart. It is. And I thought it's it's honestly just so wonderful when a director takes that kind of care with every actor on set, no matter who they are. Exactly. Yeah. Even if you have a small part. I was thinking of this in terms of um, your role in De Palma's body double mm-hmm. because I had read some interviews with you where you had said that like they did so many takes mm. and he was so interested in getting the scene right and you mm-hmm. got to work with him on on so many things and even if some of that stuff got cut out mm-hmm. you were still you know working towards kind of a, a perfect moment we actually did that scene all day i mean i was all day at, from different angles 40 takes from all different angles i mean it was hundreds of takes it was incredible i will say when i first got that film there were two other scenes in the movie that I had dialogue in. And um, the night before I was to start shooting, I got a call. Oh, oops, they've cut the dialogue scenes. You only have this one scene with Craig Wasson in bed. And I thought, hmm, was this on purpose? Or mm. is this legitimate? But I went, it's Brian De Palma, so I, I should work with him. And it was great to be with him on set. And I did it. And it was super fun. It was really early in your career, too. I think it was like the first thing I actually did on film because I I was on Days of Our Lives for about a year. That was my first job, and I think that was my second job. What do you think you learned from that set? To relax and um, to just have no fear. I mean, that was the first thing, because everybody was kind of laissez-faire in a way. Like, you know, when you're making a movie, and I, I just said, oh, you have to hurry up, and you have to go, and you have to be, you know, right on point, and you do. Um, and even I'm sure on a film like that, you have to be like that. But it it felt like I, I I could see the other actors who were on set. They they were really calm and relaxed. And mm-hmm. and I think you you want to feel secure and centered. And um, it was nice to see everybody on set just you know doing their job, but mm-hmm. and fast, but relaxed. You have to be relaxed. <laughs> I like relaxing, so that's good for me to be reminded of that all the time. I think um, uh, when I'm thinking about uh, raw, mm-hmm. I one I and I do wonder how ev- how relaxed everyone was during that shoot because it was like she Julia it was intense. It was an intense movie. Yeah, right, right. So it feels mm. like she would have to keep like the energy up. Uh, to this like specific point, um, and that makes me think of uh, the long tracking shot, the sequence shot of um, Justine going into the party. Oh, that-, that party! Let's talk about that party, and that's another group scene. Oh. Uh, that that was incredible. And again, I was in this movie theater in Dallas, and there was nobody there but me. And the sound system was so loud that I actually had to cover my ears just a little bit. And I and I read somewhere. And maybe it was even from something that you had said that um, she played the music live. It, mm-hmm. That's never done. It's I, never done. No. I mean, I'm trying to tell people like that that would be insane to play music very loud. Okay, you, so- you put that in post. You put the music in in post after the people are dancing and whatever. But to have the extras feel like they were part of the scene and to make it real, she played the music for them loud right there. 
Yeah. And let me give you guys a little quote on this, too. She said, I wanted it to be sweaty, gritty, chaotic, but chaos has to be organized. I don't like party scenes in movies because there's a horrible look in the background of people dancing to fake music. Mm. I didn't want anyone doing that with my scene, so I directed every single person on set. There were 300 extras, 50 people from the crew, in a basement that was claustrophobic, and everyone was half naked. And I insisted on putting the music real loud to get the excitement with the kids. I knew where my camera was going to be where Garantz would be. All this was very well organized in advance. And afterwards, I just tried to get people into the shots. If one person fucks up, though, then we have to go back and you lose an hour and a half. And so I directed Mm. the extras like I would direct the actors. Wow. That's beautiful. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it had a sense um, in a lot of those scenes, really in in that scene and the scene where they get, you know, the blood porn poured on them and, yeah. and that first scene when they're all in the hallway they're going up the stairs and they have to go in the basement they're crawling and all of that it had this feeling of of being overwhelming watching it it was oppressive and overwhelming and again like character's story and story is character right so as an actor when i think of things like this what it, what it makes me feel like is when you're a young person and you're facing life for the first time, you know, mm-hmm. new experiences like going to college or going to veterinary school or, you know, what moving to New York City or, you know, going whatever you're doing. There's a feeling in life of going to your first nightclub of feeling overwhelmed and a little bit like you're taken on this ride, but you're not in control of it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the whole movie and the presence of what she created with all the extras and and what you're telling me now that I didn't know, it just it was fulfilling the you know, the lead character, Justine's character of of feeling oppressed and overwhelmed and unsure about her place in the world and who she is. Have you have you had any like this kind of moment? When you've been working as an actor, where you feel like, yes, uh, this is this is all like all systems go. Everything is like all every department is in sync. Everything's working. I had a really nice feeling. Well, yeah, I have those moments and I have moments where I don't feel like that. And, you know, when you're working on a film myself, I can only speak for myself as an actor. I mean, I use a lot of different tricks, if you want to say that, to get where I want to be in a scene. Sometimes I impose things on my character that I I want her to do and I want people to see. And other times I'm really just listening mm-hmm. to the other actor and I'm receiving. And sometimes the energy will carry me someplace and sometimes it won't. So I have to rely on acting or sometimes if I can do sort of a method thing, you know, it's different moments. I'm not one kind of actor or another. I just use whatever I need in the moment. But I had a scene a few days ago that I was very excited about. I did it with Monty Markham and he played Dave in We Are Still Here and he was, you know, the lead bad guy basically. Mm -hmm. And in this film um, uh, Reborn, he plays my psychologist and his voice I mean, Monty Markham's been around since the 70s, he's been on every TV show you grew up watching as a kid and he's fantastic. You know that voice though You know that voice and you know, I did some work on the scene and I kind of knew where I wanted it to go and my character's sad about something but she doesn't want to cry and 
how do you get there? I don't know. How do you get to a place where you're almost filled up with tears, but you, but you can't cry? And it was a little pressure on me to feel like I wanted to fulfill that moment because mm-hmm. it was written really nicely. And just listening to Monty's voice and feeling the um, just you know the kindness he had towards me, and somebody was asking me how I felt, <laughs> which <laughs> oh my god, that's so nice. Just in life, somebody's asking me how do you feel, um, and the camera department was really there. It was right before lunch, and we knew it was an important scene, and everybody wanted to get it right, and the light was going down, and they they had to get the scene. My I was against a window, so they they had to get it all right, and there was just something in the moment, like everybody felt invested in the scene. The camera department and Monty was there, and I, you know, he's amazing, and for some reason. Everything started to feel like it was going there. You yeah. know, I didn't, I wasn't using any method thing. I, I was just really listening to Monty and I started to tear up, but I wasn't allowed to cry. And it was really there. And then they say, cut, like in the middle of the scene. And the director says, oh, there's some people walking in the background. Oh my God, we can't have that. I'm, I'm like, oh God, I can't do that again. It's just not going to be there. You know, yeah. you have to go moment to moment and don't say cut, just let it go. And maybe you can, you know, edit those people. Out. Exactly. Anyway, they're, they're saying now that that was the best take and they can, they can edit those guys out with you know, VFX. And uh, I'm like, okay, God love you because I can't, there's no way I can recreate that. So I had that moment, you know, just recently, which is the most wonderful experience you can have as an actor is to feel like, wow, you, you know, Every you're, you're with the other people and, you know, you have to be working with people that are generous and you have to be generous. And mm-hmm. and 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 the most important thing is to find, you know, where that moment is in the middle of the two actors. And also you you feel like you're a part of the camera department. You feel like they're with you. They're experiencing it with you. And really what it is and what I've come to realize as I've worked for so long is I don't know if people, you know, are watching individual performances as much as they're watching the energy that's passed between the two people. Oh, okay. And I think, for me, that's what I want to see. That's where it, that's where real drama lies for me. What's what's between you and I speaking right now? Mm-hmm. Where where are we meeting? And what's the energy that we create between us? And that's what I like to juggle and play with when I'm working. And, of course, in Raw, I saw that a lot, especially with the two sisters, right? They're just riffing off one another and, you know, the younger sister looking yes. to the older sister for encouragement and validation and understanding. And the older sister not quite being there for her, but hiding a secret and um, not wanting to admit to, you know, uh, what has been passed on to her from the parents and... You know, it was just beautifully, beautifully done. Um, I I want to get into the the fact that um, with horror films, actors are asked to do some really kind of out there, strange things that um, will uh, they'll take like a little extra courage. It seems as though, but mm. um, I I wanted to talk about uh, Garance and mm. Julia and the relationship that they developed as actor and director mm-hmm. because um, Garance had worked with Julia on the, a short film that was a precursor to Raw that was also really fantastic. The two of them had built up like a really great um, professional relationship because that film required her to also kind of 
uh, be very uh, body focused. Mm -hmm. And for a young girl, I think that's probably very difficult. Um, But when she was asked um, about any reservations that she had when she, you know, had to uh, cut open a dog, pull a bunch right. of hair out of her mouth, eat a, eat a raw oh. fish, chew on some various body parts, you know, all of that kind of stuff. She had said, um, there were some moments when I told myself I won't be able to do it. So oh. there were inevitable, um, uh, inevitably some moments of doubt. But Julia always put me back on track. Oh, wow. And they had, um, you know, she she speaks so highly of Julia and like the, the trust that they mm. developed mm-hmm. in that time. And it seemed extremely important important to how far she was going to be able to take this character. That's nice. Yeah. That reminded me of a moment that I had with um, Ted Gagan on We're Still Here. Uh, It's, you know, he didn't want me to really cry so much in that movie. They just wanted it to be like he and Travis Stevens, our producer, like this, this pervasive, overwhelming feeling of sadness but not crying all the time so mm-hmm. but there was this one scene where you know I was it, I had to be raw and I had to be crying a little bit more and and Ted came over and just like held my hand and talked to me for a long time maybe maybe 15 minutes yeah. and we're friends anyway but he just to kind of get me in the mood of it and he's such I don't know if you've met him but he is such a dear sweet kind deep person Mm -hmm. and just having him come over and hold my hand just I don't know just made me feel protected and and cared for and just really helped the scene so it it's nice to hear I mean I I know that happens with directors um and actors and it's nice that they had that kind of relationship and especially for a part like that she's young right how old is she yeah i don't Um, even know i think she might have been like 16 or 17 actually when she was filming it right and to accept that from a grown-up to feel like you know so taken care of by somebody like that who's not a member of your family that's that's quite um that's a quite vulnerable feeling to allow yourself to go to that place is you know that that's uh that's going to serve her well you know going on with her career um we're, i'm going to take a break mm. another break real quick and then i really really want to get into female sexuality mm. in film and okay. and how it's changed um but we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back Hey, we'd like to talk to you about our new podcast on Maximum Fun, Friendly Fire. It's the podcast about action movies and Sylvester Stallone specifically. (laughs) It's it's the show I've always wanted to make. It is not that. It is not that at all. It's a little bit more of a war movie podcast. It's not a little bit more of a war movie podcast. It is explicitly a war movie podcast. We look at them from all sides and put them in a variety of cultural and historical contexts such that anyone is going to enjoy this show. So go grab Friendly Fire every Friday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Woohoo! Ah, you're listening to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here with Barbara Crampton today. Hey. And we're talking about Raw. Um, I would love to talk about 
sex in horror films because I think that it is changing and I think that there's a kind of evolution of what's happening in, with sex and female sexuality in horror films. Uh, Raw is one of my favorite depictions of mm. sex and the kind of, you know, scary awakening, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you're conditioned to be kind of scared of it or um, it's it's just this this otherworldly thing. Mm -hmm. um, Ginger Snaps is also another one that I really mm -hmm. love for that. Um, but it's to me, it just feels treated differently here. <clears throat> well, it's so differently. I mean, hello, she's her roommate is a guy. How do you get a roommate for a guy when you go away to school? Apparently because he's gay. Is that, and then they thought that was fine. Yeah. That's so funny. I love it because it's different. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't think that would really happen. But it was it was a great choice. And the, the, the sexuality in this film um, it does it feels it feels younger. It feels like, you know, there's more fluidity to it. So you've got mm -hmm. this gay character, right? Yeah. And. But he does sleep with Gar Garance's character. Yeah. And and so there's kind of like a it's a person over the um, the orientation right. kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, that's very prevalent today in society. And great. I'm happy for that. I don't I mean, I don't care what you do, who you are. You know, it's if it suits you, then it suits you. But it, it but it's so interesting, too, that um that he is gay and he's her roommate and she's the one who has never had sex before. He has. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's depicted a few times in the movie, but she's having her own sexual awakening and also getting a taste for meat. And, um, and you know, that's from her parents, but she's the one that is the aggressor in the scene, and she's the one that sort of overtakes him in that sexual moment. Mm -hmm. And he's the one that's like, whoa, you know, back off, back off. But it's it's more a metaphor for what's coming out in her and, and who she is and, you know, being a cannibal and mm -hmm. um, that, that aggressiveness is, uh, you know, she can't even... In, at the end of the scene, oh, my God, there was so many moments in this movie that blew me away. <laughs> she's like, you know, she's having sex with him and then she's like really fucking him. And then she <laughs> puts her mouth and her teeth on her own arm and is biting. It was her arm, right? Yeah, it was her arm. It wasn't his arm. It was like her arm biting her own her own arm. It was so intense and so aggressive and assaultive. Yeah. And as a viewer, it was assaultive to me, but I loved it. <laughs> and Garaz yeah. had a bunch of bruises on that arm, she said. Her, oh, whole, really? her whole arm was just bruised when she was done because she had to, she didn't break the skin, but she was really biting herself during that, those scenes. So they had to put makeup over it because yeah. she kept bruising herself. That's how, that's how like full in, in, um, like robust sexuality robust. in this. Yeah, and that's a good that word. scene where she's looking into the mirror mm. and she's kind of like feeling herself for the first time. Oh, and she's got the music and yeah. she's listening to the rap music? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Like the, and the, that rap song was dirty and down. It's, and whoa. It's so good. It's also, it's uh, written by two sisters. Right. I read that. Yeah. Uh, it's a fantastic song.
Um, and it's she, like she's just staring into that mirror, and you can just see a transformation kind of coming over her face. Mm-hmm. And I love that there is. Um, we talk about what the female gaze is, mm-hmm. and I see that all over the place in mm-hmm. this film. Mm-hmm. Especially, uh, so the the roommate, the gay roommate, um, he's playing soccer or football yeah, in France, right. and um, uh, there's a. We're looking at him through Garance's eyes, through Justine's eyes, yeah. and um, the camera kind of zooms in on him like she's stalking prey. You know, yeah. It's that right. is. It's probably the best example of what we could, would consider the female gaze to yeah. be at this point. Oh, um, but I'm wondering. Yeah, about the sexuality, or we were talking about. Yeah, that. because like, horror and, mm. and sexuality, they, there's a lot of things that to be written and to be said about uh, horror and sexuality, how women are and their Deflowered sex. and yes. sexualized. Yeah. Hello, I did it. You know, there's, like, and I keep, I always think about Reanimator yeah. and that one scene where um, your character, Megan Halsey's uh, mm, legs um, are pulled apart and... On the cold, hard table. And, and yeah, and then just she's... taken. Ass- yeah. yeah. And she's assaulted. Assaulted. Totally. By yeah. a severed... By a head. By a severed head. And, yeah. Yeah, I mean, thank God that movie was as good as it was because if it wasn't, then you know that would have just been a joke scene, yeah, um, for all of eternity. And I was really mindful of that even when I was younger. I was like, I, you know, I. A lot of times in my career, I've gotten the silly roles, you know, that, and especially in my earlier career, not now, yeah, but um, Megan Halsey. As uh, Jeffrey Combs's character refers to her, is a bubble-headed co-ed. But I never wanted to play it like that. I don't think it was written by that. I don't think Stewart and Dennis wrote it like that. But I definitely had to impose more smarts than was written. Yeah. And I and I think a lot of the early slasher movies, um, there's a there's a lot of times when the girl is being chased and she's running whatever and she's you know she doesn't feel like she has smarts about her and she has to be saved i mean these are you know general horror tropes but Mm -hmm. um they've gotten better over time but yeah going back to that scene it was it was a very difficult scene to do and i was young and it was you know i mean it was uh it was very vulnerable for me and intense but thank god the movie was funny and and smart and my character was smart and so you know I didn't come off I don't think as being a victim so much you know I didn't want to come off like that I never want to come off as being a victim yeah and, well know? I mean you you delivered a pretty great performance and you were also nude you like yeah. this is yeah and also I will say uh there is something that we're talking about raw so you know there's a French mentality for women being naked on screen and there's <laughs> a, an American mentality and we're a puritanical society still and you know things are maybe getting better I don't know I don't know if they're getting Who knows? better but we go back and forth um but I was aware of that when I was younger and it and when people asked me to be naked in a movie, it was uh, I felt like, oh, shit, okay. They don't ask the guys. They ask the girls. It's sort of like a rite of passage in a way, and hopefully yeah. you can get beyond that. Some people don't, you know, and they, they're they stuck in those roles for a while, and that's why I always try to make my characters smart. So, yeah, I want to be naked, but I don't want to really be naked, but they're asking me to do it, so I'll do it. And it's part of, you know, it's, it's part of film. And 
if it's part of the movie and it's an interesting thing, great. If it's gratuitous, then, you know, everybody knows it's gratuitous. The writer knows it is. The director, you know, the marketing people, the audience, they go, "Eh, that's gratuitous. And and I think audiences are smarter now. Um, You know, we're not maybe quite as evolved as the French in in those terms. But... um, Everybody knows if it's part of the story or not part of the story. So let's all be clever about it. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So I think it's getting better. I feel like it's getting better. Yeah. I, I, I hope so. Mm. I think it is. You have, yeah. a different, you have a different kind of mentality that is uh, kind of coming into horror these days. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're seeing more women, you know, having stronger roles. And, you know, the final girl isn't the screaming girl anymore she's you know she does have some wits about her I was really happy to come back with a movie after taking a break like you're next and Sharni Vincent's portrayal of that woman and you know and how uh, Simon Barrett wrote her to be fearless and strong and take charge I think Mm -hmm. that was an important moment um, for those guys career Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett and for Sharni you know to to play that role Um, and I was glad to be part of that yeah, definitely. I I I admire those directors quite a bit, mm-hmm. and and how they handle female characters, because um, it turns out uh, they're they're just women. They're just humans. They're just people. <laughs> you know, they're just people. We're not archetypes. We're just people. Right. <laughs> um, well, I I think that uh, I think that's a great way to end this episode. <laughs> Thank you. So fun to be with you. Thank you so much for bringing all of your wisdom here to us. Um, I'm so happy you were t- able to join us. And um, thanks so much for listening to Switchblade Sisters. And Barbara, do you have any projects coming up that you want to plug? Um, let's see. Uh, I did a movie that premiered at the. LA Film Festival this past year called Replace and it's sort of a Cronenbergian body horror movie and I play a doctor in it um, I think that's coming out in February so I'd say you know maybe watch that alright great perfect maybe watch that <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much Barbara. thank you Thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. Next week, we'll be talking to writer and director Julie A. Bear. She's directed episodes of West Wing, ER, American Crime, The Good Wife, and a bunch of others. And we'll be discussing the Coen Brothers' debut film, Blood Simple. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we will read it on air. And by we, I mean I will read it on air. Here's one from Tabit Town. Uh, quote, this is exactly what I've been waiting for. Smart women discussing genre films. It's incredibly fun and informative. Perfect combo. My new favorite podcast. Thank you for making this podcast. Thank you for listening. And if you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at, at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.com. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. This is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.